Hey there, listeners. Thanks for tuning in to Samira Stalks. This is a podcast about the dreamers out there and their stories of entrepreneurship. So if you're curious, creative, and you're ready to make an impact on this world, then this is for you. Welcome to episode 17 with me, your host, Samira Sohail. So I'm super hyped to have Danielle Feinberg from the one and only Pixar today. Yep, you heard it right, Pixar. A trailblazer in her field, she's been there for over 19 years and worked on 12 films, designing the animation lighting for all of our enchanted worlds. From A Bug's Life, Monsters Inc., Wally, Up, Brave, and most recently, Finding Dory. It's an extended interview, so I've got a write-up too. Please remember to join my newsletter at samirastalks.com to get that. Back to the interview, there are some gems in store for this episode. We'll delve into her moment at Harvard when she saw her ability to code empowered her to create art and stories. We'll go behind the scenes to discuss the art of Pixar's storytelling prowess, and we put a lighting hat on to discuss those moments, including Dory being enticed into the pink jellyfish jungle and finding Nemo, and Merida galloping in the Scottish Highlands in Brave. Outside the animation world, she spills beans on how to up your own photography game with handy practical tips. And lastly, we discuss a topic close to my heart about getting more women in STEM fields and her efforts to inspire young girls to code to create an impact. Let's get to it. Enjoy. Hi, Danielle. Welcome to the show and thanks for being with us today. So excited to be here. So your official title is the Director of Photography for Lighting at Pixar. In a single line, can you tell us what that is? In a single line, it is, uh, I direct the lighting for our movie. In, in two lines, in live action, the cinematographer, director of photography, directs camera and lighting together. But in animation, we have to split it into two jobs. So there's someone who directs the camera and someone who directs the lighting. Okay. We'll get into that later, I'm sure. And so it's every kid's dream to be able to go and work at Pixar, I think. But before we go behind the scenes there, we need to set your scene. So you grew up in Boulder in the U.S. and attended a mixed school. Um, can you take us back to, I think, your story of the magic lawnmower? And it sparked your curiosity in the world of engineering, of making, breaking, and, and creating things. Sure. Um, when I was going into eighth grade, there, you, know, you look at the classes you want to take, and one of them was called Power Mechanics. And the idea behind the class was, that you, um, people from the community had turned in lawnmowers that didn't work to the hardware store and the hardware store donated them to the school. And so over the course of the semester, you took the lawnmower apart piece by piece and you put it back together with the idea that at the end of the semester, if you were doing your job right and paying attention, that maybe you would have fixed the lawnmower. And so, um, I, thought that sounded totally awesome. Um, (laughs) But at the same time, I was fairly aware of the fact that there probably weren't going to be any other girls in the class. And also that it was not going to be viewed as a very normal thing for me to take the class. My, you know, the other girls were taking uh, home economics or different classes like that. But I really wanted to take the class. So I had to kind of decide if I was going to risk being a social pariah by taking the class or... Um, if I was just kind of going to do what everyone else did, but I'm not actually that great at doing what everyone else does. So, um, (laughs) I, I really, um, I have gotten so many good things out of following the things that interest me and I'm passionate about. And I think it goes back to kind of this moment where I decided to take the class 
And I show up and I am definitely the only girl in there. And it is definitely considered weird I'm taking the class. But I didn't turn into a social pariah. It was okay. It was just kind of like a little bit of a weird thing. Um, and over the course of the semester, we take the lawnmower apart and put it back together. And, uh, you know, that's all we worked on. That was the entire project for the class. So there's a lot of sort of um, anticipation on the final day when we roll our lawnmowers out into the sun and the teacher is, is walking down the line putting gas in the lawnmowers. And it just so happens that I'm at the, the end of the line. So I'm watching as all these guys get the gas in the lawnmower and they're pulling on the string to start the lawnmower and nothing's happening. And so I'm just watching as the frustration's mounting and the suspense is sort of mounting for all of us because we've literally spent the entire semester just on this thing. And so the teacher finally gets to me and puts some gas in my lawnmower. And I just took a deep breath and pulled as hard as I could. And my lawnmower roars to life. And I look up and there's this like long line of guys. You know, like uh, I think uh, any person in that situation might do. Uh, I let out a yelp and then ran around the football field mowing the lawn with my, my newly working lawnmower. Fame. <laughs> it sort of worked two times over because I, I wrote about that story for my um, college admissions. And um, when I, so I got into Harvard and uh, my junior year, I happened to be at the admissions office just randomly because usually, you know, once you're admitted, you don't go to the admissions yeah. office. <laughs> and I'm talking to one of the admissions officers and he's, oh, where are you from? And he's, oh, you're the lawnmower girl. And so it was just like, you know, it was awesome because it's just goes to show you that like, you know, following the pack doesn't actually generally get you anywhere. And it's it's sort of where you stray from those things that are really the things that end up being important in your life and making you stand out from the crowd. So, well, you've done that very well today. <laughs> but let's um, let's actually go back to Harvard then. So, um, like you said, you used you used your experience to kind of um, get your place there. And I'm sure amongst endless lines of code when you were just studying computer science, uh, you also shown short films. And so can you take us to that moment where you, where you just thought, wow, like I'm, I'm captiv captivated by this to see code bring things to life, as well as how you felt at the time, like I imagine your peers were going off to do very different things to you. Yeah. Well, when I was a junior, I took this computer graphics class that was part of my computer science degree. And it was the class I was the most excited about because the this idea of writing code to make art to me is just like the most magical thing. And so I thought, oh, I can take a class where I get to program, but there's some kind of art involved here. I don't know exactly what it is, but that's what I'm doing. And um, partway through the semester, the professor showed us these short animated films. And, and keeping in mind that this is um, 1994, probably, um, okay. maybe early 95. And so there's no YouTube or iTunes or something like to see short films, you have to go to a, um, a short film festival or um, there isn't really any way you can see short films. Um, they aren't distributed in any way. And there was almost no computer animation. Then there was just a couple short films and a couple um, advertisements on TV, maybe, and then special effects in a few movies. And so we sit down and the professor shows us these short films that is um, uh, by this unknown little animation company uh, that, of course, turns out to be Pixar. And it's the films that Pixar made um, in the late 80s, early 90s time period. And so um, I, I can so 
put myself right there still where I remember watching those films and just having like my brain explode and just like saying like, Oh, that's what I want to do. That's what I have to do with my life. Because it was this idea that sort of all the, um, math, science, and code that I've been learning could come together to create not only the art, but also these whole worlds and stories and characters was just, it was pure magic to me. And so that was that moment. And then, you know, but no one knew what Pixar was yeah. back then. Toy Story hadn't even come out, and Toy Story was the first feature-length animated film. And so um, later in the semester, um, that well, maybe it was the next year, maybe it was that year, I don't know, P uh, Toy Story came out in 1995. And we went as a class to see Toy Story. And so it was the, you know, sort of this thing you're studying and it's the first giant incarnation of the magic you could pull off with it. You know, it was almost like your first glimpse at the internet, except yeah. it was probably better than my first glimpse of the internet, which was some words on a computer, you know? Um, and so it was so cool, but no one really grasped exactly what it was. But for, for whatever reason, for me, that was the thing I needed to do. So at graduation, you know, all these people are going off to do investment banking and consulting and, um, they're pre-med and they want to be lawyers and they want to be doctors, you know, all, or they want to go to government. And here I am, I'm running off to try and figure out how to do it. I can get into computer animation. And I, I'm, I'm pretty certain I was the only one doing that at the time on my year. So, um, it was definitely like a very different path. But I wasn't even remotely tempted by any of those other paths. Like, it was very clear to me that this was exactly what I wanted to do. Great to follow the intuition. Um, so you've lighted, uh, you've lighted sets for Bugs Life, Monsters, Inc., Toy Story 2. list goes on. Um, and it's probably impossible to put into words the magic of how a Pixar film is made. But um, I want to take Brave because it's Pixar's first female protagonist. Wow. I'm set in the Scottish Highlands in the UK. Um, <laughs> so can you talk to us about how it was made and crucially where your work fits in into that? Brave was a, was a crazy film where it was, um, you know, we're trying to bring this sort of mother-daughter story to the screen and um, create this incredibly rich world uh, in Scotland. And around that time the movie Avatar had come out and Avatar had sort of taken computer graphics visuals to another level of complexity. And the more, I don't know if this is obvious, but the more complex things are in the computer, the more difficult it is to, to, to create the images because it's more things for the computer to have to calculate to generate the image. And so we all saw that and went, ah, like we have to up our game. And, um, Brave was the perfect place to be doing that. We were right in the middle of it. And this creating that Scottish forest was, um, we wanted that level of complexity. So it pushed us into sort of the next level of, of sort of innovation and figuring out how to pull that off. But it was also like this incredibly important setting for this movie that was this Scottish girl and she's a teenager and she's fiery and spirited and she's awesome and she's flawed. And like all of these things that I feel like a lot of times we're really missing on the big screen of, of having these sort of, um, I don't know, sometimes these princesses that are sort of this weird distilled down version of um, a girl without all this sort of good and bad that, that yeah. goes with it. And then someone swoops in, usually some kind of prince to save the day. And so um, I felt like while working on that film that 
it was incredibly important to me that we had this really like relatable teenager, even though it's Scotland in ancient times and she's shooting a bow and arrow and she's riding a horse all day. That is not what the normal teenage girl is doing as far as I know it at, at the moment, but but that she could be this sort of like complex character with all the good and the bad that goes with being a teenage girl. Um, and so it was this like real dedication, I think, to, to bringing that to the screen. And um, I, I'm, I'm very proud of that movie. It's, you know, the good and bad of a human, not just, not just a teenage girl. So the science side of your brain must love the analytical side of modeling and reconstructing how light behaves in those environments, whereas the artistic side must empathize with the need to evoke some form of emotion, bringing these stories to life. But can you take us to maybe a specific moment in, you know, pick whichever film, but of balancing, yeah, that idea of the realism of science and the imagination of art and and how you go through that? Yeah. It's sort of like every single moment of every single day for me, almost, of when you're lighting stuff, because we, in the computer, we can cheat things any way we want. So it's based on physics, but we can cheat it. But you can make things look really stupid really fast doing that. And and if you make it look sort of fake or unbelievable or weird um, in in one way, you pull the audience out of the movie. And that is like the cardinal sin. We never, ever, ever want to do Red that. Red Right? Yeah. You know, we sort of start from this place of realism. Like, if I was in a in a restaurant with these light fixtures, with these windows, what would it look like? There'd be light streaming in from the outside, depending on the time of day. And what might the light fixtures look like? And you do that, and then you start augmenting from there. Because ultimately, like, I'm not doing um, a scientific recreation of a restaurant. Like, I'm making a movie. You know, like yeah. I'm making, and we're telling a story. And so we're trying to get all of that light together to help tell that story. And I think. The easiest way to describe it is in Finding Nemo. And so um, because it was underwater and if you make a movie that's in air, there's not a lot you have to do to sell air. But when you're making a movie that's underwater, you have to sell underwater in every single shot in the movie. And it turns out that a lot of that fell onto the lighting team. And so there was a lot of R&D early on of how do you do that? So we take um, live action footage of underwater we recreate it in the computer, figure out which are the most important elements that make up an underwater look. Um, and then we figure out which of those are the ones you have to get actually very close or exactly correct to the physics of the real world. And which ones can you play with a little bit to help tell the story? So it turns out the color of the water, you have a range that you can play with that the audience will still buy it and you can make something, um, you know, if you make the water sort of green and murky, that's probably not going to be a cheerful scene. And you can use that to have a more somber um, scene. Whereas if you have this light streaming through and it's this beautiful, intense blue, then it's a more cheerful scene. Or um, there's a scene in Finding Nemo where Dory goes into the jellyfish field and we make the water sort of pink from the jellyfish. You're not going to see pink water in real life, right? But we need it to feel beautiful. So Dory is enticed to go into that jellyfish field because it's an important part of the story. And so, um, you know, we found there were like five elements we needed to get in harmony to get it to feel underwater. And there's a couple we can push and pull and a couple where they have to be like real to science. And so that's a that's a more concrete way of the way we're balancing it. But we're um, sort of all the time when we're lighting and doing all kinds of things in the computer, really, because we can cheat yeah. um, and we have that ability. We're always um, balancing. We want believable, not realistic is kind of what we're always striving for. Do you think there have been any, like, have you seen any of the films where you're like, 
no we've 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 pushed it too far or you, you think <laughs> you know you've, you've 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 got it on point you know i think um pixar has this amazing dedication to like getting things right and and sort of spending the time and money to do that um which is part of why i love working here um but certainly like when I go see a film that I've worked on, all I can see are the mistakes of the things that I didn't get right. And so um, it's a very complicated thing watching our movies for all of us, I think. Fair enough. Um, so now everyone listening to this, uh, as well as being in awe, must also be thinking, it's too late for me. Um, but I think uh, smartphones and, and things like Instagram or Prisma have democratized what I call the art of photography and turning everyone into artists in their own right. So what are your three kind of practical top tips um, to say to people about what they should focus on when they're looking at photography? Yeah. Um, Okay, let's see. My first tip is that um, it's a fairly straightforward one, but we as humans have a tendency to want to put whatever we're photographing dead center in the frame. And the truth is it's actually far more dynamic if you shift to where the person, like say you're taking a picture of a friend, if you shift them off from center and it's really like sort of this rule of thirds you'll call your hair called, but you can get much more dynamic things if you shift them off a little bit. And then it's really fun because then you can sort of play with what's in the other two thirds of the image. So if you're running around on a trip and you um, have, you know, some fabulous site behind you, if you stick the person dead in the middle and the sites behind them, um, you are mostly getting your friend and a little bit of whatever site you've traveled around the world to see. Whereas if you take your friend and you shove them to the side a little bit, you're still getting your friend, but you're getting also whatever this wonderful site is. Um, and so that's one that's super easy to do. It's not always easy to remember. I still put people in the, right in the middle of things or even the monument you're taking a picture of dead smack in the center. Um, but you get a lot of more energy out of the image if you can shift it that way. And um, another one that I love is, let's take that same example, right? You have your friend in front of maybe Taj Mahal or something, and it's dead flat on, right? And so the thing that is so much more dynamic is, is sort of diagonals in the image. And so, so that, say, whatever your monument or Taj Mahal or whatever it is, is, is a little bit more on the diagonal going away from you. You get all this depth to the image. Otherwise, you have your friend and you have whatever your your thing is sort of going into space. But if you can get things going into the diagonal, into the depth, you get so much more um, sort of dynamic um, excitement out of the image without even realizing it. And sometimes it's just like a little bit of an angle change. Um, and that that's sort of like the other thing that I actually find very fun about photography because I run around in my spare time doing photography mostly when I'm traveling. And it's sort of we get very focused on things. And it's like if you look around... And you go, oh, you know what? If we just shifted you a little bit here, we might find a much better, it's sort of like you, we get locked in, but you look around and you go, oh, yeah, from over here, over here, we get actually a much better picture. And I'm going to give, I'll give you a fourth one, which is something that I I do. It's like all the time when, when we're lighting stuff is we spend an enormous amount of time thinking about um, light over dark, over light, over dark to get things to separate. And so if you, um, take someone's face and it's brightly lit and the thing behind them is brightly lit. You have bright over bright. Whereas if um, say behind me, we put a shadow behind my head and this part's lit up 
then my, this part of my face will pop off the background in a very different way. And so if you can get that light over dark, and it can be dark, I can be a silhouette and bright behind me, you get, you get so much more excitement out of it. And so I don't know. Those are a couple things. Yeah. I mean, I'll rip down my Facebook profile now. For like three hours about that. But anyway, yeah. <laughs> um, okay. So Creativity Inc., for those who haven't read it, it's a must read, but it's a book written by Ed Catmull who's one of Pixar's founders, about its culture specifically. And it talks about the collaborative nature of the studio, devolved responsibility, and the formula, I mean, if there is one, to producing hit after hit after hit and hiring the quality bar every time. So I guess from the eclectic mix of skills that make up a film team to what I call showing your working was a big part of the book um, throughout a filmmaking process, what are some of the things that you think make Pixar so unique? Um, I think at a very basic level, the thing that makes Pixar unique is their dedication to story beyond anything. And so if it costs more money to make a better story, late changes that they're sure are going to make a better story, we'll do it. And everybody's on board with that. But I think on a much more sort of subtle, deep cultural level, the thing that, um, that I have found to be... Um, really the quintessential thing about Pixar, I don't know if it's unique because I've worked here almost 20 years, but um, <laughs> is that um, the, I feel like this company, um, its sort of beginnings are with people who generally were like a little bit of misfits in school. So you have the artist type or the, um, the, the sort of technical um, nerdy type or the kid that sits in the back of class drawing all the time is never paying attention in class or like, you know, these things that aren't sort of um, your, your general kid in school who's like popular and, you know, everybody's like, they're going to take on the world. And instead you have these people who are wonderfully brilliant and totally creative and they came together and they created a company and they, other people came in and it wasn't like people were coming here because they're like, oh, I'm going to get stock options and be rich and famous. It was like, I'm going to go to this animation company that nobody knows about and nobody even understands what computer animation is right now, right? It's like this crazy thing. And um, I'm going to jump in and we don't know how to do this. We're making it up as we go. And also, we work with this company, Disney. And Disney is the most powerful animation company in the world. They have been for ever like as long as we can remember it disney films that are the greatest animation in the world and we're going to make these films and disney's sort of overseeing us and um you know we it was the the little tiny company trying to survive in the world of movies and the world of movies is insane it's like you look at just the animation world and it's disney's this powerhouse but you look at the world of movies and that is a cutthroat crazy place you think about how many movies come out are terrible yeah. <laughs> also like it's like a huge money thing happening. It's not like you make a movie for $10 and if it doesn't do well, oh well, right? Like you're talking millions of dollars. And so here we are, this little company. We're trying to figure out this new technology. We're trying to make these films. But it isn't just that you're trying to figure out the technology. You're trying to figure out how to make a good film, which most people can't even figure out how to do now, right? Like it's a, it's a, it's a, like a flighty thing. There is no, no recipe for making a great film. People try to think there is, and that's usually when they get it themselves into trouble. And so you have this company of people who are, um, it turns out really smart, really creative and really nice quirky people. Because when you're working with really 
smart, quirky, creative people. Everybody, I think, is just more accepting in some way of everybody's quirks. You know, it's like, oh, that's just the animators. That's just the artists. That's just the technical people. And we all kind of just learn how to coexist and bring the best out in each other. And so the thing about this company is it's a company full of really nice, supportive people. And so when you're trying to do these movies in these giant teams of 200 people coming together and bringing their best, I think that's a really important thing. And I, I don't know. I feel like at the very most basic level, that is, is what makes Pixar. Pixar is these wonderful people. So. Cool. Um, and you're one of them. <laughs> um, so you've, you've mentioned it a couple of times, but um, about being a mon- minority uh, in, in situations, whether that's education or, or Pixar itself is, is a group of minorities. Um, and uh, you, you feel passionately about, about uh, getting girls more involved in STEM subjects. Um, you're an ambassador and number of organizations trying to progress that. And um, can you talk a little bit about what those organizations are doing and what you think are, yeah, the main barriers to to getting more girls and more women uh, interested in working in the STEM fields? Sure. Um, there's the, the really great thing is that this is something that's um, become very present in society now is trying to get more girls into STEM subjects. Um, and so there's a lot of organizations doing really great stuff. So. I've done a bunch of work with Girls Who Code. Um, I've um, part of the Made With Code um, uh, website that Google's done to try and get more girls coding. Um, and I, I could list about 15 other organizations who are doing just like fabulous work. And the thing is for me, it's it's very personal having studied computer science and being, you know, in those classes, in, in the math science classes, especially my computer science classes, you know, it's five, 10, 15% women when I'm there. And that, um, turns out to be a like really lonely place. Um, and you know, the guys were not that nice and they would sort of gang up on the homework and figure out all the sort of twists and turns amongst themselves. And sort of the rest of us were just left sort of dangling, which is, um, you know, ultimately probably was better for us anyways, cause we figured it out on our own, but it's pretty hard and it's pretty hard. Um, for me, I, I don't think that because you're interested in something, you should have to suffer, right? Like I want to learn something and now you're going to suffer because of it, right? Like you want your suffering to be because you're working hard to learn something, not because you don't belong there or people are being mean to you in some way. And so um, I think it's, it's one, it's very, very important that we get more girls into those rooms because as soon as you get more girls um, and minorities into that room, that stuff stops happening because it just becomes a mix of people and it isn't, it isn't this one sided thing. Um, and so a lot of what I do is I go out and I talk to, um, groups. Sometimes it's, um, sort of, uh, underserved groups of kids, or a lot of times it's, it's, uh, groups of girls. And I talk to them about how we make our movies, but I relate it all back to the math, science and code. And so they can see, um, this really fun, amazing application of these things that otherwise sometimes in school, it's sort of like, well, I don't know. Why do I care about this? When am I ever going to use this math or when am I ever going to use the science or why do I care about computers? Because, um, you know, like I might play some games on them, but why would I ever want to learn how to program one? And then I think once the girls understand that if you have the power, you know how to program something, um, you can actually affect all kinds of change in the world just being a single person where a lot of times we feel like you have to be part of some, um, 
group with a lot of power to affect any kind of change. And the truth is, if you can code something, you can affect all kinds of social change. And so that's been one of the coolest things is working with girls. As soon as they get that, they start doing all kinds of social good stuff and, and um, making websites and apps that, that are doing amazing things that are way better than one more sort of shoot 'em up video game or something. Women account for, they say, one in 15 people in STEM fields at the moment. And what would you say your reckless dream is for getting more girls involved in it? Um, I think, you know, this is what I'm, I'm hoping is that, you know, there's this groundswell of support and, and there's people working sort of all over. It's almost like top and top down, bottom up grassroots, all this grassroots stuff. And, and my sort of dream is that, um, you know, before these huge companies catch on to how actually critically important it is for them to have an equal number of minorities and women on their staff, that the women and minorities band together and make their own companies and hit the portion of the market that these other companies are not hitting right now because they don't have the right people there. And they build these giant, powerful companies. And those those other ones are left scratching their head like, why didn't we see this sooner? We're missing like this huge chunk of the population because we're not hiring um, like sort of a broad range of people. So I don't know. That's my dream. <laughs> yeah, there are people like, you know, Goop, like Gwyneth Paltrow, there are people already starting to emerge in that space in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. So yeah, I, I like it. <laughs> um, so this is called Samira Stalks, after all. Uh, <laughs> and I'm stalking you. But um, <laughs> can you give us an example of someone you've stalked to get to where you are today and how, how, that, how that went for you? So I, when I decide to study computer science, I look at the classes I can take, and um, just like with the power mechanics one, and I see um, the computer graphics class. But I can't line up the classes in a way um, that I can take it any earlier than junior year. So my sophomore year, I emailed the professor. And I think this is like the very first time we had email, because I would have been way too shy to ever try and go meet with him, I think. So I email him, and I say... Um, you know, I'm so excited to take your class, but I can't take it until next year. Is there anything I could do ahead of time so that I could get ahead or get a little flavor of it? Now, okay, this is Harvard. Generally, people don't have a lot of extra time on their hands. I'm not sure they're really ever emailing a professor to see if they can get ahead on a specific class, right? Like, there's a lot of classes at Harvard taught by, like, incredible professors, you know, like you're pretty well dialed in each semester of like what you can handle and the excitement level of how great these professors are. Um, and so I got this rather confused email back from him saying, well, I suppose you could buy the textbook, you know, like, <laughs> great. You know. And, and so I went and, and I did end up meeting with him. And it's this guy, Joe Marks, who is uh, this wonderful guy. And he was, he taught a like one or two classes at Harvard, but mostly was running a research lab for Mitsubishi in, in Boston. And it's funny because uh, I took that class with him and he was a great professor. And then he started this graphics group at, at Harvard, which there were maybe like 20 of us doing weird graphics type problems. And I did two independent studies with him. And that's how I got sort of extra grounding in computer graphics when there wasn't really a lot available. And the truth is I'm still friends with Joe um, he went on to work R and uh, to head up R and D at Disney, and now he's off doing all kinds of crazy startups. And he's like one of my most favorite people in the world. And um, 
he has ended up being a mentor for me throughout my life. And it was one of those wonderful, like I sort of stacked him and he thought I was kind of weird, but it all worked out kind of perfect. <laughs> Great. And um, well, struggle is an important part of the creative process and, you know, uh, life process, I suppose. But um, there must have been times where you've felt hopeless and helpless. Um, can you make, take us to one of your lowest points personally or professionally? You know, there's, there's struggle in everything all over life, right? Like anything that's worth achieving comes with some amount of struggle. And I think the thing for me that was probably the hardest was, um, you know, growing up, I knew that I was a little different and I wasn't quite like the other girls and it wasn't because I liked math and science. You know, I was like sort of a tomboy. I didn't really like playing with Barbies. I was much more into like Legos and, and Star Wars action figures and stuff. And um, as you kind of get older, that becomes less about like, I like playing with different toys. And it's a little bit more like, well, I'm different, but why am I different? And there was this funny moment where um, it's funny, the things that sort of stand out in your life. And I'm talking to my, um, my really good friend in sixth grade, and she's talking about how cute Tom Cruise is. And I looked at her and I said, well, so now how do you know if a boy is cute? which is the moment that I probably should have realized that I was gay, right? But <laughs> so, um, but it's this thing of like, um, so I could never really wrap my head around why I was different because I think thinking about it made it a little bit too real. Um, but you're kind of walking around all the time knowing that you're different and being freaked out about anyone ever figuring it out or spending too much time thinking about it yourself because if you do, you have to come to grips with something that, at least back then, um, coming out as a lesbian was not, it was pretty unthinkable. Like I have friends whose parents disowned yeah, them yeah. and in school it was not okay. You were absolutely going to be um, really like people would go after you. Um, and so sort of hiding that at all costs and not accepting it yourself creates this sort of um, thing where you, you go about the world being a portion of yourself and always weighing how much attention you want. So I spent a lot of time being very careful about trying to fit in um, so that no one would scrutinize me too much. But that is very, um, it's funny because now looking back, it's like I found these ways where I could be as much myself as possible. And part of that was math and science and programming and doing those kinds of things because that was something that I really loved. And it was, it was me in this way. And so doing that but these calculated risks of like in power mechanics like am I going to go take this class where I'm going to be the only girl and maybe this is an indication to people that I'm weird and I'm not like them but I'm going to do it anyways because I think I can get away with it and it's one little piece of being able to be who I truly am instead of sort of hiding um and so it was always about how much am I going to reveal of who I am and how much am I going to keep secret and so I think that that is um an incredibly difficult struggle and I think that a lot of people walk around with secrets like that where yeah. they're hiding who they really are. And I think the thing for me that's been the most poignant, important, powerful thing is not only coming to a place of accepting the things that are different about me, whether it's being gay or whether it's being like this nerdy math and science geek or all the different things that make you who mm -hmm. you are. But it's not just accepting it, but it's actually celebrating it because the real power comes from understanding who you are and being able to be who you really are in the world. And um, 
you know, kind of once I loved that about myself, it didn't really matter if other people didn't love it because I was being who I was and it became so much more important to me that I was who I was rather than anything else. And so um, I think that's probably actually been the greatest struggle in my life. And so there, it isn't so much about a single moment. It was about many, many years. Of just, I think everyone should just want to take a step back and be grateful that we live in, in such a m much more progressive and open-minded society. Oh, no kidding, yeah. Uh, well, at the moment. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm going to move into our quick fire questions. Uh, okay. So don't think too much. Okay. Um, what would you say your top three values are? Top three values, to be a good person, to support other women, and to be happy. Lovely. Um, what was the last thing that inspired you? Um, you know, honestly, right now I'm working on um, developing the look for part of the world in this film Coco that I'm working on that takes place in Mexico and is sort of centers around the Day of the Dead holiday. And um, I, I, I can't even tell you how excited I am about some of the things we're coming up with and that the other departments are building this amazing world and putting some lights in it and it's starting to come to life. And I, I, can I you, can you give us a sneak, like the sneakiest, little sneakiest peek of something? <laughs> you have to wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, which fictional character do you remind yourself of? Oh. Um, our, well, I feel like I have to pick a, a Pixar character. And I got to, I, you know what? I got to go. I have elements of Merida from Brave and I have elements of Wally from Wally. Because, you know, Wally. I feel like Wally finds beauty in in obscure things or things that other people don't find beautiful or cast away. And um, I think that that's something that I find very important in the world um, with things, but also sort of with people too. Great. And um, what is your music jam at the moment? My music jam? Um, let's see. Uh, I've been known to... Um, dance in private to some um some silly justin bieber yeah uh, no come on art is like, art <laughs> um what tea do you drink what tea do i drink um I, i'm i'm a chai girl okay yeah. <laughs> um and lastly before you leave leave us um what would you say your danielisms are so what practical and parting advice would you give to anyone looking to kind of dream big on their own adventure Mm -hmm. Um, I think you have to know if, um, any big challenge, uh, is going to come with the days where you're not sure you can do it or you question why you're doing it. And so I think there's two things that are really important there. One is to make sure that you're working on something you're passionate about, because that is absolutely what carries you through those days. And another one is to find the people that are your support system, whether it is, um, friends or family, um, any, uh, even if it's an online sort of, um, group, I know with a lot of the girls who are coding, they have online support groups because there are no other girls in the room with them. Um, and, and even like when I was at Harvard and I was dealing with sort of the difficulties there, I played softball there. And so I had my softball team was really like my family in a lot of ways there. And so um, having that support of the person you can turn to and just be like, oh, this is so messed up. And they're like, I know, but you're awesome. Keep doing it. You know, like I think those things are really important. And I also think that it's really 
important to debunk the myth that um, when you get older, you get it all figured out. Because I think that <laughs> when you are an adult and you're sitting there in those days where you're like, what am I doing here? I don't know what I'm doing. And when is someone going to figure that out? If someone actually told you that that's going to happen to you, maybe you go, oh, this is one of those days. Okay. I just got to kind of like, you just keep putting one foot in front of the other and you, you're like, yeah, yeah, I hear you think I can't do this little voice in my head, but I'm just going to keep going kind of thing. I think it's easier to weather those moments where everyone's like, oh, when you're an adult, you're, there's no problem. Nailing it. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show, Danielle. Thank you for having me. It's been such a treat. As always, thanks for listening. And do reach out at Samira Storks on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram to let me all know what you thought. And please do share the love, send this episode to someone you know who might enjoy it. Join me next time, I'll be speaking to Harry Stebbins on the story of a 20-year-old university dropout who's now a venture capital star. Join me then. Bye.